And without further ado, um, we're going to uh, hear from our next keynote. Dee Hewan. Dee is the Creative Director and Executive Director of Beyond Edge. Thanks, Dee. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for that moment of reflection there as well, Michael. Um, did, uh, how many people were at, were at Andrew's presentation yesterday? Everybody? Yeah, excellent. Andrew's uh, keynote yesterday, for those who missed it, revealed um, how different our world has become. Um, and uh, was anybody sitting in the keynote yesterday one, wishing that they'd had that kind of educational experience? Yeah. yeah. And how many are going to go home and start downloading Andrew's uh, podcast just for the hell of it? Yeah, I know I'm going to be, so amazing. Yes, um, so it, it is a different world that we live in, and Simon, um, Simon Payne yesterday spoke about how different our world is and how change is all around us. And he's absolutely right, of course. Um, right now, we're experiencing unprecedented change and at a faster rate than ever before. We live in a climate where our jobs can become extinct before we finish training for it. I mean, we're living in that kind of reality at the moment. So, really, at, at no other time in history has there been bigger challenges for L&D people. That's no exaggeration. The whole business model uh, for L&D is shifting. And Dalshi shows us, you know, some of the directions where we're headed um, and what we can do to, to help us prepare ourselves and our learners moving forward. So what I want to do today is um, bring you a slightly different perspective. I want to talk about what's, uh, what has changed. Um, we'll examine some of the, the business and economic drivers that are going to control the way that we, we do things as we move forward. We'll take a look at some technology. Um, and, uh, and how that technology is shifting our thinking about e-learning or learning. Uh, drop the E, Therese tells me yesterday. Um, and I want to take you to, on a journey where I think e-learning is going to be next year and the year after, years after that. Okay. Just to give you some context from uh, where, where I come from, I'm, I'm in a fairly privileged position where I get the opportunity to consult with and talk to a, a large range of people from lots of different organisations. And I get to, uh, to get an understanding of what's, what's motivating them, what some of their challenges are, what their cultural, economic um, challenges are in order to put together appropriate um, strategies. E-learning is a, uh, Beyond Edge is an e-learning company. Uh, we produce strategic e-learning solutions for clients. Um, and this is across a wide range of different corporate, um, government, local and international uh, organisations. So, Dalcha gave you a perspective of what's happening in secondary education and what I want to do today is give you a perspective from on the field or in the workforce uh, and not from, from academia as such. Um, yeah, so, so, um, so that's where I come from. Uh, if, you, if you talk vet to me, I probably won't understand you. Um, I, I'm, I'm from the, the, sort of the corporate environment, I guess. Okay, so we, we talked about change. Um, we all know that, that instinctively that change is all around us and that um, um, things are changing all of the time. But have you ever stopped to think about how much things actually have changed? I've been looking at it and, uh, and this is what I found. A futurist and well-respected trend spotter, a gentleman called John Nesbitt, has mapped the rate of change and tells us that based on his model, the rate of change follows this kind of a, a graph, where X is time and Y is information, right? So this timeline is, is what we call um, the start of the information age, 
and it doesn't it doesn't seem like a long time ago, um, but so much has happened in in this very short period of time. Let me just highlight a few milestones here. Okay, if we zoom into the 1960s, we see that along with flower power, mankind brought about the invention of the first industrial computers, and this opened the doorway to the processing of information. Yes, we had to literally punch holes into cards and turn everything off to to get in there and sweep the bugs out of the machine. And, and, and that's that's a true story. <laughs> Insects would be trapped inside these machines, and uh, we'd uh, we'd actually have to sweep them out in order to um, uh, to to start up the computer again. So a reboot could take all day. Um, I guess not a lot has changed in that department. <laughs> These computers, though, for the first time, could store and process data, and it kicked off this obsession that we've got with information. <coughs> Around about the same time, the, the printing press was automated, so information could be distributed farther and wider than ever before. So this allowed information to double within a 10-year period. Okay? All of the information in the world doubled within a 10-year period. The 1980s saw the start of desktop computing, and... This allowed information to double every five and a half years. And it hasn't really been a very long time since we've had affordable computers. Dalchi spoke yesterday about the miniaturization of computers and, um, and how far indeed we've come. Just to give you some perspective, this is the first ever Mac that was sold in the, the late 70s um, for the spooky price of $666.66. <laughs> you can get yourself a one megahertz CPU. 8 kilobytes of RAM, and oh, the, the box is display only. You've got, to, you've got to construct your own wooden box to put it in. <laughs> the keyboard doesn't come with a unit. Sorry, you've got to buy a keyboard kit, um, and, um, and you've got to wait for the family to get off the TV so you can plug it into the back of the TV in order to operate it. There was no mouse. In. You've got to know your, your DOS commands. This, uh, this particular unit, Steve Jobs actually built himself, and... Um, and Apple sold 200 units of this particular machine. I think Steve Jobs had the good sense to employ some um, some good industrial designers <laughs> in his later models. But this is what, this was the start of it all. So, um, and incidentally, this, this machine just sold recently at Christie's auction for $165,000. So it's a it's a, an antique. <laughs> but I digress. So. Desktop computing allowed information to double every 5.5 years. And the 1990s, thanks to a little thing called the internet, information doubled every 20 months. Today, the rate of change is such that data doubles every six weeks. And there's a three to six week window where new information supersedes the old. Three to six weeks. So if you've forgotten to check that email that's sitting in your inbox six weeks ago, you might as well drag it straight to the recycle bin because in that period of time, it's been superseded by other information. Okay. So hang on a minute. Uh, I sat down and wrote this presentation about six weeks ago. <laughs> so I'm actually not bringing you anything new. I'm presenting some outdated pieces of information. That's a bit embarrassing. Sorry, Mel. A lady out the back is walking out. I understand. That's okay. <laughs> Don't blame you. It's not current enough for you. Okay. Well, I did some more digging, and I found that Ray Kurzweil tells us that the rate of change is such that in the 21st century, 
we'll see change equivalent to 20,000 years of the previous century. And that change is exponential. I'm not a maths major, but I can sort of understand that Nesbitt and Kurzweil are kind of talking the same language. So that presents a momentous challenge for us in L&D. If we accept that there is some truth in these models for the rate of change, then what does that mean, what does that mean for our role in L&D? How do we hope to make e-learning sustainable if information is changing all of the time and content is out of date before we've had time to deploy it? It's like playing a game of football where the field just keeps getting bigger and you never quite hit the goalposts. So what do we do? One researcher says that we need to change our thinking <coughs> on thinking. Professor Francis Scholl from HEC Business School in Paris contends that we need to rethink the way that we think because we live in this world that is experiencing huge change at a faster rate than ever before. And it was kind enough to, uh, to de describe that to us with this diagram. Okay. We've moved from a world ruled by order and hierarchy to an interconnected world shaped by chaos. What does this mean? Well, information used to come to us via a top-down approach, similar to this diagram, where those in power controlled the information. The printing press made it possible for thought to be distributed farther and wider than ever before. And it gave those in power the mechanism to proliferate their views to an audience that's wider than the town corner. Okay? Editors would decide what's, what articles are in the public interest, and program managers at radio stations would decide what songs are likely to become hits and release those at their discretion. Today, television stations would air content depending on what they thought is fit for public consumption and transmit that down to consumers. But a strange thing happened in the 21st century. The advent of the internet has meant that we now communicate in an interconnected web uh, represented by this shape. News is no longer controlled by the big media houses. It's controlled by you and I. No longer does something happen than a blog or a YouTube post, a tweet, will instantaneously beam that information to millions of people. And the way that we see information, people, relationships, our world has shifted from this pyramid to this multifaceted interconnected web. And we're only starting to begin to understand its impact on our lives and therefore our learners' lives. In less than a decade, the world has shifted into this interconnected web of information. And you can imagine the outcry that would occur if Facebook, for example, was shut down for a month. Even within our office, there would be riots. <laughs> What's that disconnected feeling we have when we leave our mobile phones at home? You know, wh why is it that we can't walk out the door without that feeling of connection anymore? So God forbid, what would happen if the internet went down? Um, do, we, do we go back to sending each other snail mail and wait 7 to 14 days for a response? 7 to 14 minutes is too long for us at the moment. So you see, interconnectivity is intrinsic to our existence now, and we live on a diet of constant information, and we're not going to give that up. Our brains won't let us do that. Research shows, new research, uh, shows that new information increases the dopamine levels in our brains, and that's the pleasure centers of our brains. It's stimulated by learning new stuff. And so the brain doesn't discern whether this new information is important or trivial, 
it will release these dopamines um, regardless, which explains why these tidbits of information that we get from social media is so satisfying, regardless of the level of importance that that information represents. Dopamine, incidentally, is also the same chemical that's related to addiction. So we're all simply drugged out on information. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, it's not as silly as it sounds. In fact, researcher Nicholas Carr recently conducted research on this very subject. And in his book, The Shallows, the what the internet is doing out to our brains, Carr suggests that we need to take a respite from the digital world periodically to exercise that part of our brain that's involved in deep thinking. He's concerned that we've become a generation of people who live in the shallows of learning, storing information to our short-term memory and not taking time to deeply integrate what we learn into our long-term memory. As sad as that sounds, Google is becoming our external hard drive. We seem to think that our brains have limited storage so we're going, to, we're going to deal with information just when we need it. Eric Schmidt from Google was quoted recently as saying, Google will tell people what to do next. And whilst Google have very good intentions for what he says, it's truly scary. You know? Google knows so much about us that Google will tell us what we're going to do next. So without deeply understanding things that we learn, our capacity to learn also diminishes. In other words, Carr believes that we need to spend time in reflection to deeply understand and increase our capacity to learn. And that's not happening with this next generation. Or, or um, this next generation is too stimulated in order to deeply integrate any of the learning that we give them. So who's going to hand in their gadgets for a week? One person? Well done. Carr is fighting a losing battle. One person put up, up their hand just now. Okay? So our learners are more likely to be receptive to Dalchi's approach of respectful connectivity than the approach that Carr is suggesting. And, and our wide brains has also created this other consequence where we live in a world where information is cheap and easy to get and we take information for granted. No longer are we hunting around Aristotle and the infrequent visits from the wise men to tell us stories from afar. Today, we take it for granted that if we're looking for information, it's a quick Google search away. Whether we want to find the latest tips on e-learning or Aristotle's finest thoughts, it's all there on the web. And, and this is the reason why the tools that we're using are shaping us, similar to what Dalchi was saying yesterday. Professor Francis Scholl suggests that we also need to develop a new intelligence for this new economy because doing business the way that we've always done it is no longer working and more and more business models are failing because they've refused to accept that there's this fundamental shift in the way that we communicate. So I won't talk too much more about Francis Scholl because I want to give you the opportunity to do some, some personal exploration of that content yourself. Um, there's some really great clips on iTunes U that um, uh, Francis Scholl has... Um, has put together on, he talks about intuitive intelligence, which is something that I think you'll find fascinating as teachers. Get that dopamine level going, you know what I mean? <laughs> so what I do want to talk to you about is how I think this applies to, to us and what we do about it. If you really looked at it, our business model in L&D echoes more of the pyramid than of the web. 
we have processes and procedures that are top-down. We have content, and our learners just prescribe that content whether they want to learn it or not. We're like information doctors pres prescribing pills to solving niggling learning pains. But the pains are, are now much bigger than niggling learning deficiencies. They're now system-wide changes to the way that we do business. Here are, some, here are some six directions that I think we need to consider moving towards. If we're interested, if, if you want to know, um, uh, if we want to solve or start solving some of these problems. And, and when you're on a, a keynote speech, you, you, you tend to, to feel like you, you have to have all the solutions. And, and the thing is, um, we don't have all of the solutions. Um, and what I want to do is take you to some of the areas where I think we should be headed and, and also join in a conversation about you know, what you're doing in these areas in order to move us forward. Okay? The first key direction is our learners are going to search for information regardless of whether we want them to or not. So it's important that we teach critical thinking to our learners to help them filter the good from the bad. We need to stop teaching not stop entirely, but we need to uh, make sure that along with the information that we're teaching people, we're teaching our learners how to learn. <coughs> because as current as our material is, we need to make room for the fact that it's quickly heading towards its expiry date, and there's more appropriate information that's available. Engagement occurs when learners participate in their own personal exploration of the content, which is why Dalchi's approach is so effective. We need to understand that our role is to kick off this process of learning, and the rest is up to them. Uh, in fact, this should be in all job descriptions. Aside from your primary duties, your job is to learn. And the reason, some of the reasons for that is, you know the old adage of the top ten jobs uh, in five years' time don't exist today? Well, we're seeing this phenomenon play out in epic proportions at the moment there's a good chance that with the changing business models, your learner's job's becoming obsolete. And it's not just specific jobs that are becoming obsolete, it's entire industries that are becoming extinct. We've seen this happen in publishing, we've recently seen it happen in investment banking, where within a space of a month, the entire industry collapsed. And as I mentioned earlier today, it's possible that the job that you're getting trained for doesn't exist by the time you finish training. Moreover, we're seeing a huge number of technology workers in their 40s and 50s at the top of their game being replaced by less expensive, younger talent, not because their employers want to get rid of them or that they want to save money, but because their knowledge is woefully out of date. They learnt in a paradigm where a university degree served them for their entire working life and their workplaces are ill-equipped to, to keep their skills current. Fourthly, there's no such thing as a career path anymore because a young learner's ideal career path may not exist by the time they graduate. And so the so workplace training is going to have to look at new business models in order to... We, we simply don't have um, the capacity to keep up with the rate of change with our current business models. Which leads me to the second point in terms of the direction that we need to head is self-directed learning. We need to provide ways for our learners to self-select their learning based on what's relevant to them and their job. 
not just because we want to be great employers, but because we need people to be able to learn the disciplines of active and, and, uh, and aggressive learning throughout their working life. And furthermore, we need to, to, to make sure that, that they get up to, to, to speed with skills constantly because we don't have all of the answers, nor will we uh, as we move into this next um, phase of existence. Next is the volume of information we are expected to consume in our daily lives means that we now have shorter attention spans and we need information delivered to us in a more concise, compelling and engaging way. And I'll speak a little bit more about engagement in my second session this afternoon if you're, if you're attending that. But even if we had all of the attention span in the world, we're now, uh, we're now expected to do more, create greater output and be more productive faster. Um, and and, and that, that rate of change is not going to slow down anytime soon. Which brings me to my fourth point, is that information needs to be available just in time. And by just in time, um, I know that that term gets used quite a lot, but what, what I mean about just in time is, is making sure the content is available when it's needed, where it's needed, and making sure that it has a direct business impact right away. Okay? Learning has to be available on a variety of skills and accessible via keyword search, via simple navigation, when and where it's needed. And beyond critical thinking is intuitive intelligence, which, is, which means after assessing all of the data, there's still decision-making beyond all of the facts. That's what's going to separate a good and bad leader as we move into this next phase. And now, nowadays, we need to see ourselves as moving away from controlling to empowering. Instead of seeing ourselves as educational doctors prescribing content, we need to see ourselves as personal trainers helping learners to be intellectually fit to fend for themselves. Because in the very near future, and I mean right now, knowledge is a commodity, and the ability to synthesize knowledge into new thinking and new decision-making is, is actually what's going to be a premium value. Let me just elaborate on that point for just a moment. The role of L&D needs to shift away from training to motivating. We need to find new ways to motivate learning and adopt an attitude that it is our responsibility to create this culture of learning within the organisation. Because in a fast-changing world, innovation and new thinking is the new currency. Um, Dalchi mentioned this yesterday as well. White-collar knowledge workers... Um, are now the new endangered species in the sense that that kind of work is becoming out of date and a lot of that work is being shipped offshore in droves. Okay? Value is shifting back, therefore, to those who can take information, knowledge and synthesise that into new thought and innovation. So all the right brain stuff is becoming more and more important as we move forward. So successful organisations in, in this new world order are those who have trained their staff to synthesise knowledge and place innovation and new thinking at the top of the agenda. So the fact that you're here indicates that you've got a, a high level of commitment to, to innovation and, and all that, all your dopamine, dopamine levels are low and you need a, a bit of a kick start. But I'll be happy to oblige. Um, let's take a look at where this, this world of e-learning learning is going. Um, I, I wanted to... Um, to, to first talk about some of the, the, the shifts or the game-changing things that have, that have happened. Um, I, um, I was looking through my Star Trek um, uh, DVDs and found this, this image here. Um, and, um, uh, and today, 
you know, the iPad has uh, replaced this and it, it's strikingly similar. We are getting an overwhelming in, uh, number of inquiries as, as a company for development in iPad and iPhone at the moment. Um, and the reason for this is, um, and the reason I'm not talking about portable media devices in general is that our clients have been very specific. Um, this is the device, or the Apple devices are the, the, the products that they want to develop for, and this is becoming a, uh, a very strong trend. In balance, I know that in 2011, there'll be, we'll see a release of a, a range of different tablet PCs, but the iPad for the moment is the one that stands out as being uh, important. Even Gartner, who uh, is an organisation set up to do trends and forecasts on the most important changes in e-learning, references the iPad as the device that learning professionals and CEOs should be looking at. So let's see what a group of business leaders from around the world has to say about the iPad. I think the iPad is a fantastic idea for a learning experience like this. It's there. And of course, getting an iPad, I mean, it's just an iPad, but in, and that's one of the things that really inspired me, is not the iPad, but the fact that I am a digital immigrant. Being Canadian, I think this iPad idea was great, and the reason I think that is that uh, I heard about all the tons of papers that uh, were being eliminated. Uh, so from a war on waste uh, perspective, this is a fantastic tool. You don't have to carry a lot of books in your bag, so it's, it's quite advanced, and I like it. Searchable, you can get all your document presentations online. Perfect. It's a good innovation. Thank you very much. So, uh, so there's an interesting thing. So Apple are fantastic company. They're a, they're a company that uh, have game-changed the industry. And I'm, a, I'm an Apple fan by heart anyway. I have five in my house and there's only three people who live in my house. I have it in my hands and it was a very cool experience. And we were really going paperless so it was it's a very nice uh, touch uh, of uh, IMD. The iPad is, is a wonderful uh, communication device. Um, it, it's obviously great to connect with other participants in the program, but what I find most useful is the resource of the device and watching videos, uh, understanding well, how I can better prepare for my classes with ease. I have three little kids and they were playing with the iPad at home already and now mom has one as well and I did all my notes on it and I am totally aware of what is going on in the world. I think it was a great idea of IMD to use the iPad instead of the, the big folder. It's much lighter and I sort of forced myself all week to be paperless and to use uh, the iPad. So I took notes in, in each of the uh, sessions I was in and uh, can refer to those notes uh, for every session uh, during the week. It's really been handy. Looking through uh, things that were loaded by IMD this week, such as FT.com and Bloomberg, um, I have to say, compared to the Kindle, which I also have, um, the iPad is a, is a winning is a winning device. Uh, I don't have to lug around a bunch of paper. It really is a, a an information source for me uh, that's truly remarkable. On Monday, I have an appointment with the head of communication of our company and to talk about social media and what we are going to do with it. So, yeah, I'm I'm totally inspired of that. And from now on, I won't be. Although I'm not 30, as you can see, but I'll be in digital. Native not, but not an immigrant anymore. Studying type of uh, opportunity, I think it has uh, has proven for us, uh, for me, uh, to be a great tool, and it uh, definitely adds probably to the image of an IMD. So, uh, well done. Okay. So, 
It's just an iPad. It's not just another tablet PC, isn't it? Um, what's the big deal? Uh, here's an example of what the, the, the learning potential is of the iPad and why it's a, bit, it's a game changer. This guy is a little bit of a mad professor, and I love this. I've been interested in elements for quite a long time. Uh, back in about 2002, I kind of, it's kind of an accident, but I ended up building this um, periodic table table. It's, it's an actual table, but it's also a periodic table, and it's got, it's got all the different elements in it. It's got these tiles that represent each element. Uh, and ever since then, I've been sort of collecting things to put on this table. Uh, elements. You know, this is antimony, right? It's made of antimony. It's also an, uh, a Fulian incense burner. Um, this is uh, Five Nines Titanium, very pure. Uh, this is a lovely bottle of mercury, incredibly heavy stuff. It's metal, but it's liquid. Um, this is uh, a wonderful bismuth crystal, very colorful. Um, I really like this stuff. I think it's very exciting. It's very interesting. This is the stuff that we're all made of, the building blocks of the universe. And ever since I started collecting these objects, I've been trying to figure out how to communicate to people uh, what's so wonderful about them. Um, you know, early on, of course, I started off with a website. What else would you do? Uh, I had periodictabletable.com for a long time. Um, then I got a much better URL, periodictable.com. Um, and it's got lots of pictures and photographs and videos, and you can see all these objects. Um, but it's still not, you know, it's not the actual things. So I started to, you know, what else can I do? How else can I communicate about these objects? So I started, you know, printing some products, making some things you could actually buy. Here's a periodic table poster. I put this up in your classroom. You got huge pictures of all the elements. It's pretty nice. Um, but it's, it's kind of flat. Uh, I made these... Um, Placemats. These are the kids love these things. You can buy them in science museums all over the place. Big pictures, um, stories on the back, um, but again, kind of flat. Could do better. So this is a 3D version of that placemat. It's a lenticular 3D print. Everything kind of pops off the page. This is getting pretty nice. It's it's three dimensional. That's good, but it's kind of small. Uh, next thing I did was this book. This is a really nice book. It's published by Black Dog and Leventhal. You can find it uh, in bookstores everywhere. And it is a picture book of the elements. You've got every element gets its own page, well, two pages, big pictures, small pictures, lots of objects. Um, all, all this stuff here is in, all the stuff in my office is in the book, like bismuth. You've got, uh, here's the real thing. Here's the picture of it. It's a nice picture. But, you know, it's still flat. And what about the other side? The other side's pretty interesting, too. Uh, so I'm excited now to be able to show you what I think is absolutely the best thing yet in terms of communicating to people what makes this interesting. And that is the Apple iPad version of this Elements book. Um, let's start it up here. So this is basically an ebook, and in the sense that it's an electronic version of that book. But it's not like any ebook that you've seen before. Uh, it's not just sort of an electronic version of paper that's kind of you know stuck on the screen somehow. Instead, it's really taking advantage of this new medium. Uh, so, for example, you see here the periodic table, but it's a periodic table where everything is rotating. All these objects are turning around, so you can see them from all different sides. Um, in particular, like the bismuth crystals right there. Let's go look at that. So we click on it here, and here we've got a huge, filling up the whole screen version of this crystal, and you can see the back side of it, which you couldn't see before. Uh, and we've got a bunch of other things, too. That's, you see these pages? It looks pretty much like the paper book. It's the same nicely composed page. Uh, it's got the same objects on it, and they're kind of arranged, and they look good. Um, 
But these are all not just pictures. These are sort of magical versions because I can take them and spin them, every one of these, at the same time. I can take a couple of fingers and take two of these and independently rotate each one. I can take all of my fingers. I can kind of wipe them all, get them all spinning. Um, this is the, the magic of multi-touch uh, technology. Um, and let's see just uh, how close I can get to showing you what this object looks like in reality. Let's double tap on it here. And now we get it big, full screen. That's good. It's actually almost life size. Um, but I can do even better than that. I can tap here. And now I've got a stereo 3D version of this object, which I can rotate with my finger. And using a pair of these uh, inexpensive uh, 3D glasses, which you can buy from uh, our website, you can actually look at this and, wow, it pops off the screen in actual live 3D, which I can control with my finger while I'm looking at it in 3D. Okay, it goes on for a little bit longer than that, so I'll just stop it there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for indulging that with me. <laughs> so as, as I was talking about, uh, we're now madly building iPad uh, projects. And um, there's some really cool apps that are coming up fairly, fairly soon. Um, and uh, as I was leaving the office um, to come to this session, um, the staff had brought over a CPR demonstration that they had built on the iPad where you use the touchpad to do the compressions. Um, and depending on the, the, the level of your compression is... The, the level of the one-third chest depth that you're meant to, to do in your iPad. And there's a microphone. Um, I don't know if you can see it. It's just um, here. And you can blow into the microphone to provide the breaths and the, the, the breathing action that you, you make creates a particular sound and will create you know, the, the level of um, compression, that, that, that breath that you need for the, for the CPR simulation. So, so it opens up a new way of thinking about learning. Uh, which is what we we find really exciting, and, um, uh, and 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 that's what 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 keeps us doing what we're doing. Uh, okay, so that's that's what we're that's what ha what's happening at the moment. Uh, into the future, where are we headed? Um, we've been looking into augmented reality. Does anybody know what augmented reality is? A couple people. Well, the best way to describe augmented reality is to sh simply show you um, the, the combination of real life. Um, actually, with digital elements. Um, how many people think this is a long way away, this kind of thing? Yeah? Well, let, let me show you what's happening uh, in the augmented reality space today. Um, this clip shows you how um, learning can happen in an augmented reality um, sort of a way. So, um, so the idea here is we've... Um, uh, we've got a marker, which is a, uh, a, a piece of uh, visual code that gets sent to the computer via your webcam here. And holding it up allows you to, um, to generate a um, sort of a, a 3D graphic that's, that should be shown depending on where you place it and the angle that it's held up to the camera. Um, and... Um, just, so, just to show you that it is quite a, a commercially viable um, proposition, augmented reality, this is an example of what's currently happening. Okay, um, final thing is gesture-based computing. Um, and remember that um, scene in, in Tom Cruise's Minority Report where he's um, gesturing to the computer and, and different things are happening? Um, that's 
science fiction only five, five, six, five years ago. Um, and now it is a reality. Okay, so there's a, a, a look at what we'll be talking about in the years to come and, and how we, we, these technologies are going to shape the way that we build e-learning um, as we move forward. Um, okay, so um, and all of this has occurred within this year. Okay, so all these new technologies are emerging um, just very, very recently. Yeah. Uh, one of the panel members yesterday, I can't remember who it was, um, said that, um, that she just wanted to keep playing with this stuff. Um, and that, that's exactly what we need to do, I, I think. And that's what, that's what our ethos is at Beyond Edge, is that we just keep want, wanting to play with this stuff. Um, and that's how innovation happens, and I, and I think it's, it's, it's an important comment to make. Um, so... Um, Keep in touch. We, we send out information on what's, what's new and what's current. Um, you can, you're very welcome to join our, our social media pages. Um, uh, that's available up there, and we've got very little time left. Um, and um, there's also a, a lucky door prize. Um, and um, if you wanted to opt in for that um, lucky door prize, beyondedge.com forward slash opt in. And the prize is a, a full day of, of instructional design with our team. Yeah. For, for, for the members of your team that are doing instructional design. Okay, so that's, that's me. Okay. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks, Steve. We've got a few moments for uh, questions, if we have any. We'll just wait. If we ask you to wait till you get a microphone. Any questions? Everyone's doped out. Um, is there a danger of developing um, projects and books for um, a, sub, uh, a system that's as closed as iTunes? Um, okay. Um, I, I, I think um, there, there's, there's, there's the same argument for developing something for, for iPad as opposed to BlackBerry or, or any other device. And, um, and essentially... What we're saying to clients is what's important is the content develop, is developed in a generic way. So if you've got a video clip, it's, that's, that's a self-contained piece of content. If you've got an audio program, that's a self-contained program, and that can be repurposed to the medium that you need it to go to. Um, and so um, if you're able to develop content uh, once and deploy it in a range of different mechanisms, that's, that's what... Um, the, the, the goal is to, to do, yeah. Yeah, look, um, listening to you, I, I couldn't help feel a little reminiscent of uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, saying that the iPad would save the publishing industry. Yeah. I just wonder whether companies like yours have felt a little disintermediated lately where teachers have chosen for more user-generated content over having to go to very um, expert-orientated, very expensive design companies to get their content out uh, in an engaging way for their students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, engaging, engagement happens right at the, the start of the content development process, and regardless of what medium or, or what fancy graphics you use, what's important is, you're right, that, that content, and it's, that content has got to be developed in such a way that, that engages people. Um, and and, um, and the, the solution is not always uh, fancy graphics and, 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 and things. The, the solution is getting your content right. Because that's, that's more than 75% of the work. Um, and the rest of it is, is, is basically uh, a process of distracting people from what they're doing in order for them to focus on what, what's happening. So that, that we understand that that's the reality of developing e-learning. And, and that's the reality of developing e-learning in this 
this this age where where people have no attention span. Um, so um, so so that's that that's the that's that's how we we, we structure content. And that's what's important. Yeah. <coughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Um, from the perspective of a teacher and also a parent with um, quite different children. In the past, we've always thought of children as ADD as having a learning disability because they're thinking about so many things at one time. It seems to me in your model, in the constructs of your model, those children will actually have an advantage. And perhaps if teachers could change the way the classes, the 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 class interacts and the way the class functions and the way assignments are given and worked out, that these children will actually rise up instead of always being the ones at the bottom of the pile. Because if in adult world they have to be someone who can have their mind in a lot of places at once and juggle, which is basically what ADD children do, they juggle constantly, that uh, they're better set for the world, but only if our education process allows them to develop those skills instead of constantly feeling like they're inferior because of those kinds of ways of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue that every learner has their different preferences as well. And, um, and, and we're, we're, education is structured in a very specific way at the moment. And similar to what Andrew was saying yesterday, uh, we, we need to provide more modes of, of learning that, that tap into a range of different uh, oral uh, requirements, visual learners, you know, kinesthetic learners. And, um, and e-learning traditionally hasn't been good at the oral and kinesthetic stuff. And, and more recently, that is becoming much, much uh, easier and, and, and better to do. I've got some examples of that in a later session uh, that I can show you. Um, but uh, I don't know a lot about a, uh, ADD, but um, I can, uh, what I can relate to is that, that there's different people have different learning preferences, and abs- you're absolutely right. If we can develop e-learning that supplements and supports the different ways that people learn, that's, um, that's, what, we, that's what the advantage is. And in, in developing your e-learning courses, making sure that you've got different ways to represent the same information. And when we build a, a chapter of learning, we cover content off in a, an oral sort of oral way. We also demonstrate um, that um, once you've learned, learned the theory, you get a chance to apply what you've just learned in a activity or, or physical demonstration, such as uh, there's an example of CPR where, um, where you, once you've learned CPR, the theory, you then get a chance to kinesthetically apply that to a, uh, a simulation. Um, and then you're, you're assessed on it um, as well. So it's a, a different way of learning. So capturing as many different ways of, of doing the same piece of learning as possible. Yeah. And in terms of our national curriculum, um, which is being re, re- changed again, uh, the national curriculum does not address any of these issues at all, does it? Because well, it's still based on uh, memorize and regurgitate, which absolutely. is totally pointless. Yeah, isn't yeah it? we're teaching in a 20th century way. Uh, um, just, just very briefly on the data graph you showed at the beginning and the growth of data and time. If you extrapolate that a little further, you get the growth of data will get to the point where we'll be able to predict the future, yeah. which is what you were saying about Google telling you what to do. Your thoughts about that and how that ties in with augmented reality? Yeah, well, um, I, I find it a little bit scary, uh, in fact, that, um, and um, I'm very conscious of my, my web surfing and, and how much uh, organisations are collecting about me in terms of, of that information. Um, and, um, uh, and 
what you do about it is, 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 is something that I don't have an answer to. You know, the, we, we need these services or, or we have this perceived need of these services um, and, and the, the only other option, it seems, is to, to not use them or to, that, is that abstinence. So um, uh, in terms of how that applies to augmented reality, um, I think um, augmented reality is going to take... Um, and you saw the example of walking into... And we can do that now, and I can do that on my iPhone where there's a browser that I can point at a building and it will tell me what that building is and what's inside it and, and, and it will take me to a wiki of that particular building. So, um, so like you're saying, um, because my phone is registered to me, um, the, the developers of that particular browser know that I'm there and where I am and, and, um, and there's a whole, a whole host of privacy issues uh, in the news recently, we heard that um, taking a photograph and uploading it into Facebook is a perfect way for a stalker to track you down, you know, because there is geo code associated with all photos that are taken with mobile phones these days, and any new camera is going to have geo coding on it as well. So there are issues that we have to, to sort through, um, and that there are no simple answers uh, at this stage. And, and if you're really concerned, then abstinence is really the only option. <laughs> Last question. Thanks, Richard. Um, hi. Um, I, I'm just wondering about uh, sort of the equivalent to the slow food movement, you know, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the antidote to this uh, faster and faster stuff that's happening and also reflecting on the, the comments from your um, business community about the iPad. Um, I got a, a text on my iPhone yesterday from Telstra saying uh, your free trial for uh, voice-to-text is about to, uh, to end. If you do nothing, it'll continue. Um, and I'm thinking um, where there's sort of conflict in the workplace or where people react too fast to um, situations um, that we need as educators some kind of mechanism to press the pause button, to reflect more, you know, to slow down a little bit. And perhaps um, there's some good ways of thinking about this in relation to this, say, voice-to-text where you get a chance to think about uh, what the meaning of that is beneath that and, and particularly at a management level how to kind of slow this down and come up with some other solutions. So we keep the human element going into this rather than just the pressure of uh, more and more release of the dopamine or mm. uh, whatever. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think um, um, organisations are going to have to look at what, what are we going to do to give people enough time to, to even complete the learning, let alone having time to... Um, to, to do the reflection afterwards. And so, really, it, it, it's, it's all about balance and having, um, um, making sure that when you're de delivering a course that you're setting enough time for it and you're setting enough time for that, that social interaction and that reflective time um, afterwards. Uh, we, we, all, we all need that, as it seems. Um, so when you're going in and advising uh, or working with people at a senior sort of corporate level... Do you bring that element into the design to help them really use their management skills that are intuitive, that, that kind of right brain stuff that, we, that Andrew was talking about, and to enhance so that the technology is still just a tool? You know, we're human beings. Absolutely, we're... and, and that, that's part of the, the, the strategy process is, um, yes, we can develop an e-learning piece, but how are you going to actually deploy it and how are you going to engage people in this learning process? Um, how are you going to structure the time so that they can deliver it? How are you going to blend it with a face-to-face -face, um, um, follow-up session? 
how are you going to allow social interaction. So all of those things uh, are, are talked about. And, and, and once the project is complete, unfortunately, our role as an e-learning provider is, is over. And, and, um, and, and we, we come back, and, and, and a lot of our clients are, come back to us all of the time, but we don't have the capacity to control how they interact with that piece of learning after we've left. Yeah. Well, thanks. That's a great question to finish on. And, and I think um, I'd just like to uh, make the um, ubiquitous umbrella presentation. And thank Dee for giving us so much to think about. Lots of questions. Um, thank you, Dee. That's such a great idea. <laughs>